0: Okay, I'm glad you're here, and I want to uh, I want to talk about um, I want to talk about money today, and uh, specifically what 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 it is and, and what it's for, and and I want to tie it into this notion of the coin of fire, or that the, the half shekel uh, of fire that was shown to Moshe Rabbeinu, um, that this is how we're supposed to give tzedakah. Hashem says to Moshe that the Jewish people are supposed to give like this. And He shows this half a coin, and it's on fire, and it's taken from just beneath the Kisei HaKavid, the throne of glory, which is really synonymous with the, the heights of heaven. And... Um, And so so that's really really in terms of the depth of understanding, the the, the headquarters to understanding what money is. Because we're told that that's the way one is supposed to give. So there's all sorts of uh, mysterious aspects to this. Why are we being shown a, a half a coin? That's one question. Another question is, why is it on fire? The other question is, what is it? What are we supposed to learn from the fact that it's being drawn from this treasury chest, so to speak, which is at the heights of heaven? And how does that relate to us in terms of how we're supposed to relate to money and what it's used for? So, I'm drawing from uh, Rabbi Moshe Shapiro's uh, talk on this. Uh, in English, it's translated to as uh, Atonement of the Soul. And uh, I'd like to get into... To some of these ideas, so so one of the things that he points out is is something from the from something from the Shabbos morning prayers. Um, it's it's uh, in the Art Scroll. Uh, it's a uh, page four hundred and eight, and it says it's in the middle of I guess the second second prayer after Baruch Hu, uh Shabbos morning. We, we, we have this phrase, we, we, we talk, we're uh, praising God, and we say there's no, I'm going to read in the English and then I'm going to switch to the Hebrew in a moment, it says there's no comparison to you. Um, that, that, that's what we're going to focus on right now. Let me just read the rest of it because it's part of a lengthier praise that I, I always really like. There's no comparison to you, there's nothing except for you, there's nothing without you for who is like you. And it says, "There's no comparison to you." Now it's going to re- recapitulate and go into a little more depth. There's no comparison to you, Hashem, our Shemar God, in this world, and there will be nothing except for you, our King, in the life of the world to come. There will be nothing without you, our Redeemer, in Messianic days, and there will be none like you, our Savior, at the resuscitation of the dead. Okay, but we're focusing in on this word. There's no comparison to no comparison to you, God, in this world. Um, in Hebrew, we say ain. And and in the Hebrew, it's it's a little more specific. Comparison is a more general term, and it's not an incorrect term. Before I get into the specifics of the Hebrew, let me just um, focus on one point. A lot of us make a mistake in terms of thinking about God. Um, When it says that there's no comparison to you, God, in this world, that's a real key to understanding... God on, on, on a deeper level. You see, the mistake that many of us make is that we think that God is a bigger, stronger, smarter version of us. Like we think, wow, so so he's like us, only way better. And he doesn't make any mistakes. But it's so beyond that. <laughs> if you if you the the problem with thinking of God as a stronger, better, more perfect version of us is that we're limiting God tremendously by keeping Him within the paradigm, within the template of a human being. You know, um, as I like to say to my kids, God doesn't have a body. He makes bodies, right? He's way beyond that. Way beyond that. So, So we have to understand that God is more... Than just bigger and stronger than us, it's it's way beyond that. But let's let's get back to the Hebrew here, um, which is that it says "ein ke'erchacha." Now, really, that has a more specific definition than there's no comparison. It means there's no value. Remember, we're we're talking about money right now. There's no value like you in this in this world. So God, you're the most valuable thing in this world. Now, value is actually a very relative thing because, you know, you just go on eBay, for instance, and you'll see stuff that, you know, you're ready to throw out could fetch large sums of money because it's a collector's item from someone's childhood, a lunchbox or a... You know, I once had, I once had this... Uh, it was a baseball coin, and I guess when I was collecting baseball cards when I was in third grade or something like this. So this is the early 70s. And one year, uh, they put these little coins in the packs of baseball cards. And I had the, really the best people. I had Willie Mays, and I had Hank Aaron, and you know a couple of others, which were the biggest, biggest names. And these were really rare because they only issued them like one year. And they were in perfect condition, and every once in a while, if I were if I was in a bookstore or something like that, I would look in um, like a, a uh, you know a, a price guide for for baseball cards, and I'd see if they'd even list these baseball coins. No one even listed them. So I was thinking, you know, there's really something quite special here. And then when eBay became really big, and everyone would say, there is nothing that you can find on eBay, everything is on eBay. And by the way, I think that that's actually true. In my my experience, in terms of checking that out, that does seem to be the case. Um, So I thought to myself, one day, you know, because I hardly ever think about these coins, but one day I was actually focused enough to think about it and think about eBay and look it up on eBay. And they were there. And I couldn't believe it. And I looked at the price, and the Willie Mays one, you know, that's a big name, The Willie Mays one was selling for, now this is about 30 years later, was selling for 25 cents. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I'm still, as you can see, this happened a few years ago. I am still trying to recover from the emotional shock of that. (laughs) Anyway, so it goes. So, So value is is something very tricky. Something that's valuable to one person might be wildly valuable to another person, and maybe not. Now, I'll give you an example of that. Rabbi Shapiro actually gives the example from the Gomorrah. It's in um, Kedushin 8a. And um, when you do the redemption of the firstborn, the pidyon ben, you have to give five shekels. That's a, you know, a, a money denomination. You have to give five shekels to the Kohen. To the priest, and uh, and then you sort of redeem the child um, from his service in the in the holy temple. So it's a whole service on the thirtieth day, and uh, and the Gomorrah says that um, in lieu of taking the five shekels, which we don't know. I don't. I'm not sure about all the details of the story. We'll just get to the central financial transaction here. Maybe. Rav Kahana, that's who the, the, uh, the sage was. Maybe Rav Kahana was trying to help out a poor person here. I'm not exactly sure what the circumstances were. But the point is, is that he accepted a scarf which was worth way less than five shekels from the person. And the reason why he did that, or the reason why he could do that, was because Rav Kahana said that this scarf, I need this scarf right now. And since I have a need for it, even though, strictly speaking, it would sell for a much lower amount of money in the store, since I have a need for this thing right now, it's it's valuable to me right now. And so therefore, I will take this scarf worth less than five shekels, ordinarily, in exchange for the five shekels. So, So now, the rabbis throw on a big P.S. So... Let's make sure that we're following the point here. In other words, when we talk about that there is value, such a thing as value, and that money itself is the expression of value, Okay, and now we're saying that, well, wait a second, value seems to be in the eye of the beholder. As you can see, if someone needs something badly, it might be worth more to them than that. Okay, so... So now the rabbis throw in a big P.S. and they say, if that thing is worth less than a pruta, is worth less than a penny, then you can't do that type of thing. You can't say that that thing, which is basically valueless, is worth five shekels. Okay. so as long as it has a little bit more of a meaningful value, then you could do the exchange. Otherwise, you can't. Okay. so now let's get back to the prayer and we can tie all these thoughts together and get to the point. When we say, Ein When we say that there's no value like you, God, in this world. First we're saying that there's no comparison to you, God. You're not a bigger version, stronger version of us. So there's, no, there's nothing in this world which is a miniature of you. You are unique. But then we say there's no value like you. There's nothing that's as important as you, as valuable as you, God that everything in the world that you might think, well, it's not as valuable to me as God is, but it has some value to me, is worth less than a pruta, which means it has no value whatsoever, which means that God is the only thing of value in the entire world. That's what we're saying with this prayer. God is the only thing, we're saying two things, God is the only thing of value in this world, and nothing else in this world has any other value. Both things, because otherwise you could say, well, I love God and I love collecting baseball cards, right? So yeah, God's worth more. No, those baseball cards are worth less than a pruta, which means that they don't even enter into the discussion. So God, you are the only value and there is no other thing of value in this world. Well, that can really clarify a person's life in terms of if you want to know, if you want to ask yourself, how should I be spending my time? What should I be working on? You know, well, we make a very strong, we make a very, very strong uh, answer to that. Um, Okay, so now let's go, let's go deeper. So, so now remember our initial question, what is this idea of a half a coin on fire? Like what's? And it's being drawn from this treasury chest, which is at the top of heaven. And that's how we're supposed to give. How does all of that connect? So now, if we want to say that the essence of value, the essence of value in this world is money. That's how we express value. Then then what is a half a coin that's on fire? Now listen to this. This is actually pretty deep. Fire can't coexist with another thing. It sets other things on fire, or it destroys other things. So if you if you put anything, if I put like um, here, how about this as the my vote for the worst bank in the world, the Bank of Fire. <laughs> You take all of your hundred dollar bills and you put it into the bank of fire and nothing is left. We guarantee all of your money will be incinerated. Actually, it doesn't sound so unlike the stock market today, right? So, so anyway, you have the, the bank of fire. But that's, that really is what the coin, the half shekel of fire is standing for, without, without joking. What it means is is that the true valuation of money the true value, and what did we say is the true value? Like, you know, at a certain point, I don't know if we're still on it, we have the gold standard, which means that all of American currency is is uh, stacked up against a certain amount of gold that we have in the treasury. And so it guarantees the value of the dollar because you know that there's a certain amount of gold behind it. So what we're saying now is that the real standard of value in the world is only God. Okay? So this half shekel of flaming currency is coming to tell us that all other currency next to it becomes disintegrated. There's only this flaming currency, this flaming value of God. And that's why it's located in this treasury chest at the top of heaven because it's expressing that God's value is the only true value and that every other value gets disintegrated, gets set on fire, gets burnt compared to it. Now there's another step to this. Why is it only half a shekel? Because all other money has to be joined to that half shekel. In other words, when one evaluates what they have and what kind of money that they have, they have to join their their nest egg, their net balance, whatever it is, to that half shekel, which then gets burnt. Because it's an expression that the only true value is God. So it's like this ladder that climbs all the way up to to Hashem. So now, let's get into this a little bit further. Because we're making the point very strongly here that God is the true value of the world. So, I want to go into... The prayer for money that we say in the Shemona Esrei. So now this is my analysis. We say, by the way, just so you know, an interesting fact about this, it's the ninth prayer in the Shemona Esrei. Now nine is the letter Tet. And the Gemara says that if you dream of the letter Tet, it's a good dream for money okay because nine correlates with this prayer for money um, by the way interestingly of all the letters in the entire chumash in the entire torah the letter that appears least often is the letter tet <laughs> just kind of i don't know how that relates exactly but it's uh, it's a uh, it's just uh, another another idea okay so now we have the prayer for money. Now, it seems to me, remember, these prayers were composed by the Anshei Knesset HaGadola, the Great Assembly, which was the greatest collection of sages around the time of Ezra, which is about, you know, 2,000 plus years ago, more than that. And, uh, and you also had the last, you also had prophets participating in the formulation of, of these prayers. So you have prophets of Hashem plus the greatest sages, and we're going back, getting pretty close, especially relative to our time, to the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. So the prayer for money, that's going to be, this is going to be a good prayer for money. Whatever it is, it's going to be a good prayer. Now, interestingly, the word money isn't mentioned in this prayer for money. <laughs> that's pretty striking. There's no shortage of words for money, and they knew all of these words for money. Okay? Why aren't they using the word for money in the prayer for money? That's, that's, that would be a pretty compelling question. Alright. It's called, the, the, the initial words is are, Baraych Um bless on our behalf. Well, you know, it's pretty short. I'll just read the whole thing. Bless on our behalf, O Hashem, our God, this year and all its kinds of crops for the best. And give dew and rain for a blessing on the face of the earth. And satisfy us from your bounty. And bless our year like the best years. Blessed are you, Hashem, who blesses the years. Now, you know, what you do have there is a prayer for crops, and it makes sense since back then we were more agriculturally oriented. And cash and crops kind of went together. So there you have an expression of money there. Okay. Um, but it's it's not so simple. And the essence of the prayer is really in the blessing at the end. What words are they using? Because that's the that's their summary of, of what the request is. Okay. So let's focus on this because I think that this is instructive to us in our lives um, today and, and every day really. We say you Hashem, we say, who blesses the years. So, so this is, this is quite interesting, I think, that the blessing for money is actually, the prayer for money is God who blesses the years. It's a blessing for time. It's a blessing of time. Now, You know, my father of blessed memory used to say this to me quite often. He used to reflect on this. And it's amazing because it's my understanding of of what this prayer is saying right here. He used to say to me, you know, David, he'd say, when you're young, you have time, but you haven't got money. And when you get older, you've got money, but you haven't got time. And then he would bless me. He'd say, I bless you that you should have money and the time to use it. And I really think that that's what this prayer is, is saying, is asking God for. That we're, we're asking God for this level of sustenance. It's amazing that it's being put in terms of crops, which is sustenance, really. It's not necessarily luxury, but, you know, could be. But it's the time, the ability to use it. You know, I was thinking that I'd actually really like to make this more of a formal experiment, but I haven't had a chance to do it yet. But I'll just put out the hypothesis um, for you. My, my senses is that if you went up to uh, any, uh, 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 a number of people and you asked them, tell me the happiest moment in your life. Right, I bet that they'll tell you a time where they're not in the process of spending money, where they aren't in the process of spending money. You know, maybe some people will will say, um, you know, I'll I'll put that thought another way. It's more of sort of like a radical rephrasing of the thought, but I I don't think it's contradictory. They they got a lot of the um, phone messages. Uh, well, through testimony, of people who were making their last calls when their flights were going down in the whole 9-11 disaster. And to a call, to a call, and these are all different people, all different ages, all different walks of life, all different socioeconomic circumstances, to a call, every single person who called their whoever they were calling, called to say, I just want you to know I love you. Every single person with the last moments of their life where, you know what, no one said, you know something, I've got a $100 bill tucked in the bottom drawer, take yourself out for a really nice dinner. You know, I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but but the point is, is that that level of human connection, that level of closeness, is that thing that we're striving for. And, you know... It's, um, we're, we're, we have to be aware that we're living in the middle of a society which is built on a tremendous pyramid scheme. Do you know, the, the, what, uh, people get arrested, it's, it's, it's called the economy, by the way. <laughs> but it basically is a pyramid scheme. Pyramid scheme is, is based on the fact that you bring in a couple of people below you who have to sell more than you're selling, and then their funds go up to you. And if they can bring in more people, then those people's funds go to them, and then you get a cut of that also. So you're at the top of the pyramid, and it's a great system, as long as the ever-widening numbers of people below them can continue to bring in more people. But the problem with pyramid schemes is, at a certain amount of time, the people on the bottom rung can't find enough people or aren't skilled enough to bring in enough people to keep the pyramid going. And then what happens is the entire thing collapse. And it's against the law. It's called a scam. But our economy is very close to that exact thing. You know, it still blows my mind that after 9-11, to go back to that, sorry event again, Rudy Giuliani, who was acclaimed and I'm not criticizing him at all. I just want to point out something that he said, who was nationally acclaimed as a hero of that of dealing with that event, and I'm not saying otherwise. And in fact launched a presidential bid which wasn't successful, but you know, in in, in, in good measure on the national recognition that he got from being a hero um, after it happened in terms of calming the people, I'll never forget the words that he said in this very emotional speech afterwards, I'm not sure exactly how long afterwards, but soon afterwards, he said, please, please, do your patriotic duty. Go out to stores and spend money. That really, and it wasn't a joke. This was a, this was a dead seriousness. That the greatest act of American patriotism at that point was to keep the economy going. Go and buy an iPod in order to keep America going. And again, I'm not criticizing it. I just want to point out the society that we're living in. Because if we don't understand that every single billboard and every single commercial and every single movie and every single clothing ad and every single pop-up on the internet is all directed toward this same thing, which is trying to conflate in our minds the notion that that time well spent is money spent on consumer items or something like that. And if we can all just like just cut through all the noise and realize if I have to think of my happiest moment right now, it's not me forking over some dollars for one of my great pet peeves, true religion jeans. W- where did they get the chutzpah? The temerity to name a gene company true religion. I mean, if that's not a sign of the times, you know, you don't have to be a philosopher to like, you know, just sort of like wonder about that one. So, so the point is, we're praying to God. Please, God, give me the time. Give me the time to use the blessings that you're giving me and again there're many many words for money in Hebrew not one of those words is used and what a deliberate what a deliberate act by the sages not to use a word for money in the prayer for money because what is money you have to think one step further. Money equals the ability to use it wisely. Money doesn't end at money. See, one of the things that absolutely astounds me is academias and popular societies... But especially the, the scientific world, their inability to think one step, one step back. And the two examples that I've sort of been focused on are evolution and the origin of the universe. So, without going into evolution and all the issues involved with evolution, evolution postulates that all of life stems from a single cell organism. Okay? Without going into it. Let's just start with their premise. Where did the organism come from? Where did time and space that the organism exists in come from? Answer me that. The origin of the universe. Great. Big Bang. Totally correlates with Kabbalistic sources, by the way. It's a... a Scientific description of something that we've known for thousands of years, by the way. But again, putting the theory itself aside, you want to say that there was a sudden cosmic explosion bringing reality into existence? Okay. Where did the physical first point come from? Where did the fabric of time and space that it exploded in come from? So you know it's sort of like it's it's like this tremendous you know uh, the magic castle i think that was the first place say club out here that you know does sort of high caliber illusions it's the first it's the first time i ever saw the expression close up magic i i don't know why but i just think that's kind of a weird phrase close up magic It's not the far away kind, guys. This is the close-up magic. That feels like close-up magic. It's like right in your face. You're so busy trying to grasp, you know, okay, so you've got a single cell thing and everything like that that you're not thinking, wait a second, where did that thing come from? Or the giant cosmic explosion? Okay, so it's the same thing with money. Money doesn't end with the acquisition of money because no one wants to be rich and miserable. Because if you're rich and miserable, I think it's even worse. Because then you sit there in your house, in your giant, buttery, leathery <laughs> armchair, with the finest, you know, banging sudden, you know, Museum of Modern Art kind of like incredible stereo system, with your Range Rover like sparkling in your driveway. And you're thinking, why am I so miserable? (laughs) And all of the items around you mock you. So clearly, clearly, no one wants to be rich and miserable. But again, it's thinking that next step, which this prayer, so I think brilliantly brings out, A, by not mentioning money, and B, by showing that money is just a vehicle for how you're going to spend it. Now, this gets us into the next point, which is in Perkei Avos. It says, who is the rich person? Okay, so now we're going to have another, from the sages, another definition of wealth. And the definition of wealth is a person who is satisfied, samech bechelko, someone who's satisfied with what they have. Again, no monetary amount given. And they're talking about someone who's rich. It's very surprising. Again, no shortage of words for money. In fact, they seem to be postulating something extremely radical, which is that someone can even be rich without any money whatsoever. So, so where does that put us? it puts us in a place okay but you know something we always have to argue the other sides of things also see you know the responsibilities that we have in this world compel us to occupy ourselves with money they just they just compel us to and so and so so we need money and it's and it's I don't want to I don't want to give this talk about money and end on this point that it's sort of like well, the sages never even mentioned money and you can be rich without money, which is totally true and you can pray for wealth and not even mention the word money, which is also true. And then therefore everyone can draw the false conclusion who needs money? I'm just gonna run after God not the point this is the great this is the great tightrope walk of judaism it's an amazing thing where you have to have both sides it's it's a very sophisticated religion that we're involved in you know because a person has to be constantly balancing opposites constantly but which is exciting that's it's great i mean everyone's got to be like A genius, basically. You know? But everyone is given the ability to do it. Now, so a person has to become involved in this world. And they have to get money. But, here's the point I want to end on. In scrambling after money, somehow, 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 a person has to keep in mind that money is not the objective. And it sounds obvious, except when you're in the middle of the scramble for the money. (laughs) And except when you're in the middle of an ongoing scramble for the money. Then it ceases to become obvious and not only that, but the point that money isn't the ultimate objective actually becomes annoying to have pointing out, to have pointed out to you. So again, this is the this is the challenge that we're faced with. And um, you know, I want to end on this point just to widen this perspective to all mitzvahs. It's a short P.S., but kind of the bottom line of what we've been discussing today. A famous Torah from the Kutzke Rebbe who says the following, that even the performance of mitzvahs can be turned into idol worship. And how does that happen? Because it would seem that mitzvahs are the opposite of idol worship. How can you even say the word mitzvahs and idol worship in the same breath? It seems like a a chutzpah, right? So, So the answer is that if when you're doing a mitzvah, you're just serving the mitzvah, and you're not seeing it as a vehicle to connect with God, if the last thought in your mind is just the mitzvah itself, and that's where the divine service ends then you're turning that mitzvah into an idol. You're worshipping an idol through the performance of that mitzvah. So the Katsuk Rebbe says, it's a very very radical, very strong thought. Everything has to be follow through with a person's life. All of their deeds have to have follow through. The point that it's so easy because it takes an active willing of life force, of focus in order to get across, is that the action doesn't end with the action. The action ends with the thought after the action. Where that's the point where you take whatever you've just done, whatever you've just done, and you bring it up to God. So God should bless us with the means, with the money, with the time, with the ability, the health, to perform it, and then with the focus and the clarity to uplift that action to the highest place in heaven.